Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pensipolitics with Mr. Watson. I am indeed your host, Christian Watson. And today with me, I have a very special guest, perhaps the biggest of Pensipolitics so far, Dr. Joe Jorgensen. For those of you who do not know, Dr. Jorgensen is a professor over at Clemson University, lectures in psychology. She is famously a libertarian, the, the libertarian presidential nominee, and she is here to talk with me right now. Dr. Jorgensen, how are you doing, ma'am? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Let me point out one small thing, though. Yes. Technically, I'm not a professor. I'm a senior lecturer, yes. which the students absolutely know no difference, but my boss does. So oh. I try to keep that straight. <laughs> right. Still, you have your accolades are very astounding. Students. Your accolades are astounding, and I'm very happy to have you here. And I'm happy um, to start off with our first question that you're in the race in the first place. So, <clears throat> Dr. Jorgensen. When I look at you between your two opponents, President Trump and Mr. Biden, I see something different. I not just the fact that a lot of people have been pointing out, you know, that you're a woman and that should mean something and that means that you're better than whatever that I'm not gonna get involved in that debate. But what I have seen, I've seen that the way you carry yourself, the way you talk about things, you are not bound to a particular dog dogmatism or a particular tract. You are instead bound to the conviction of your principles, which rests in the affirmation of what human beings really can do when they are left alone. And so entering into this space, which is such an anathema to that idea, which completely and utterly sort of rejects that kind of idea in a way by having government act as a paternalistic entity for many reasons or having government act as a savior for industries that may be dying or may just be going out of fashion in so many ways our politics is emblematic of 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 a sort of anti almost human sentiment so with that in mind how do you take forth that mantle of truth that mantle of illumination which the libertarian parties uh, insignia symbolizes and put it into our political discussion in a way that is con that is not only effective right now but also pays dividends years down the line. Yes, well, as you are alluding to, you're correct. The Libertarian Party has a platform that most sticks with individual rights, individual rights and individual responsibilities. So rather than going through, you know, every time the wind blows, we change our minds, we stick to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And we believe that government's job is police, courts, and military. Anything above that, what you're doing is you're asking bureaucrats to spend your money on their lobbyists, their special interests. And you mentioned the two other people. And I'd like to mention that, or point out rather, that when we look at those two guys, even though they keep throwing barbs at each other and say, you know, anybody but Trump, or you, you can't let Biden and Nancy Pelosi win, Really, with both of them, you get bigger government. You get more spending, you get fewer freedoms, you have people who are taking away your right to choose your education, choose your health care plan, choose your retirement, choose any of those. So the Libertarian Party is the only one who says, you know what, government is not going to be uh, your mom or dad. We are going to allow you to live peacefully and let you make your own decisions instead of the special interests. And is it, isn't it a shame that that very solemn principle, which this country was founded upon, which this country was literally yeah. birthed upon, which every instant, every historical institution in this country, especially the colonialist era institutions that came out of the revolution, were in, are embedded with that sort of 
a self-reliant spirit, the frontier which pushed forward American progress in the, in the, in the 19th, 20th century. All of, of the great American hallmarks are embedded with this very simple truth. Why do you think today that what you just said and what I'm saying and what libertarians have been screaming since the 70s, since the party was established yeah. in the 70s, is such a radical proposition, is such a quote-unquote crazy proposition why do you think that is why have we gotten further from glory not to be cliche but to, to try to explain this how, how what's going on well i think it's because the other two parties control the media and granted you've got some media that are right some media that are left but they are basically uh packaging it in a way that it doesn't sound radical and i would suggest that we are the only party in fact we've we've got so many volunteers who come to the party because they say wow what dr jorgensen just makes sense it's common sense so we are getting so many non-libertarians because if you actually listen to the message and not listen to the people on the media screaming uh, calling us names but actually listen to the message you'll see it's the only radical message you know what's radical about having a drug prohibition that's like the alcohol prohibition from the last century who wants to bring back alcohol prohibition when's the last time you heard for instance of um two liquor or yeah two liquor store owners having a shootout on the street corner where an innocent five-year-old child gets struck by a bullet when's the last time you heard of a liquor store owner um in the high school trying to push gin uh when's the last time you heard of <laughs> because he couldn't or she couldn't support her vodka habit through uh, a normal job. So rather than having Philip Morris, Seagram's and so forth sell our drugs, instead we make them illegal just like during Prohibition and now we put the money in the gangs. How does that make sense? That's what I call radical. What I call radical is having the government spend over half of your money. What I call radical is that you have a community and that you, um, instead of making your own decisions for education, you send money to the federal government and you have a huge department of education that has a one size fits all that puts, you know, gives you your money back. Uh, if you look at rural Appalachia, they've got very different needs than let's say people in downtown New York City. But trying to get us to all fit into a one size fits all, that's what's radical. We are simply saying that Let's try the non-radical idea of people making their own decisions instead of letting bureaucrats and politicians and lobbyists make them for us. Indeed, and I and it certainly and it seems that given the spirit of this this country was conceived of from, you would think that people would be more amendable to that kind of thinking. But unfortunately, they're not. And you mentioned a lot of interesting stuff in that response. And what I'm really getting from all that is that people think this way. They are so want for paternalism because, again, of societal expectations shifted by government action. A lot of people say that uh, politics is downstream from culture or whatever, but I, I like to say that politics can mold, and this should not be the case, but this unfortunately it is, politics can mold and even shape how the culture is because you can have a culture of people that are against whatever political ideology a party like for example the culture in america right now is very much opposed opposed to donald trump's kind of um kind of politics it just is a, a vast majority of people are and that was shown in the at the election when hillary clinton got more votes than he did popularly and that's shown a lot of how a lot of people react his disapproval numbers and everything like that so but still the government is maintained by people 
who have a certain mindset. But the danger is when the government is able to inflict their mindset onto the people and then use that to drive home their power, to give legitimacy, to give authority, to give grounding to what they're doing. And so under a Joe Jorgensen presidency, how would you use that specter of cultural influence that the, governor, that the government illegitimately possesses to drive forth a recognition of what has always been there in the first place, i.e. our internal, inherent, natural human freedom. How would Joe Jorgensen do that? Well, the good news is, and, and I gotta admit, I was getting worried for a while, thinking that maybe we had lost that. And I'd like to point out that three of my grandparents are immigrants that came over in the 19-teens. And so uh, we also have not only what you talk about uh, from taking our country from the British, We've also got the kind of people who came over here who were independent, fiercely independent enough to leave their safe homeland and come to a free country. And I was beginning to get a bit worried that maybe we had lost that independence until I saw all of the protests about being under house arrest from this COVID-19 thing. And when, when I saw the people in Michigan who were like, no, I'm not staying yes. home. And they got in their cars and they ran and, and, they, and I thought, good, we still have some of that American independent yep. left, and people don't want to be stuffed. So I would use what I would call the natural uh, quest for freedom that people have, and we do. Uh, let me give you an example, and not to get too much into this, but there's something called reactance theory. Uh, remember, I do teach psychology, and it's basically what we call reverse psychology in everyday language. Not sure if you heard the stories about Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife, who backstarted the Parents Music Resource Council, mm. and they wanted to ban CDs. So this will tell you, tell you how, how far back it goes. <laughs> so they wanted to ban CDs that had uh, bad language, drug use, sex, violence, so forth. Obscenity laws, basically, things like that. Yep. Yes. Exactly. Censorship, obscenity. And so they had all these congressional hearings. It was pretty funny because one of the people who was for um, the music industry was Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister. And so he would show mm -hmm. up, you know, with this mm -hmm. hair everywhere, mm -hmm. talking for, you know, prim and proper uh, Tipper Gore. And they arrived at a compromise in which they could still sell their, you know, raunchy rock and roll music but it had to have a little sticker on it saying, you know, bad language and that kind of stuff. And uh, so what do you think happened to all the albums with the little sticker on it saying, parents beware? Well, every 15-year-old and 16-year-old, they were like, okay, that's the CD I want. <laughs> the yeah. one with the little sticker that says that I shouldn't get to listen to it. Yeah. So when you do something like that, you get the opposite effect. And, and that's what we're seeing right now, especially with uh, people being locked up with the virus. Yeah, not only that, but I mean, if you, if you look at any hip-hop or rap album, if you, this, it, it has, it's almost like a trademark or like an artistic statement of many rappers to say explicit parent discretion right. advice. I mean, that's literally a trademark yeah. in an artistic like, point. Me. Yeah, yeah they, me. They, they made that uh, from a thing that's supposed to be discouraging to literally an artistic trademark. So even when the government imposes their mindsets upon the people, the unique American spirit is going to convert that into a sort of profit or a sort of benefit for themselves. And that's what an entire industry of people have done. So it's, it backfires. Right. Yeah. And so my point is, is I wouldn't have to instill this in the culture. It's part of human nature. 
people do not like it when their freedoms are taken away and they try to get that choice back. Absolutely. Now let's shift to, because I, I love the more abstract theoretical questions, but I know that you're writing presidential campaign and most Americans want to know about the meat and potatoes. a little abstract. <laughs> yeah, but let's, let's talk about the more meat and potatoes stuff. Let, this pat these past few weeks, and I'm sure you've known uh, known Dr. Jorgensen, uh, I've just been incredibly perilous. They have been just absolutely perilous for this country, for race relations, for everything. This has been perilous with the death of George Floyd, and then you know in Atlanta last night, a man getting shot at a Wendy's for falling asleep at the drive-through. Eric, the chief, resigning, and the the coronavirus protests before that. A lot of this stuff has simply come, I think, come to a head. And a lot of people are using these occurrences to try to sort of read the tea leaves about where American culture is right now or where the, the American political consciousness most importantly is right now. So in your opinion, let's start with, the, with one of the more, I think, one, one of the more basic questions. What do you think about where, where number one, Americans are in the relationship to the police? And number two, where is your campaign? In relationship to law enforcement reform, because I had talked to Spike Cohen, your feet, you're running me a week ago. He talked about reform and qualified immunity, all that kind of stuff. But sort of in the the mentality, what mentality does the Jorgensen campaign, beyond particular policy prescriptions, possess about the current state of law enforcement in America? Well, let me answer that part first, because okay. that's the simple part. President, the federal government should have absolutely nothing to do with the police. Uh, crime is a local issue. Amen. Assault, robbery, burglary, all of that's a local issue. And I will leave it up to the police departments, the mayor, the city council, the taxpayers, the voters. Let them handle it. And again, maybe different policing communities have different ideas. Now, of course, if, if somebody's rights are being violated, then we would step in. For instance, George Wallace, uh, in, in one of our neighboring states, by the way, Alabama, yep. who stood there and prevented black students from disgusting, entering. disgusting okay, person. Exactly. So, so okay, then the federal government gets to be involved. But for simple policing, federal government should be completely separate from local, have absolutely nothing to do with them. So that's the easy part. Now, as far as where we are now, I would suggest that it's the federal government being where it shouldn't be that that's caused all of this. So uh, a lot of people don't realize that the federal government is giving tanks, grenade launchers, and some of these other equipment to local police departments. They're giving them money to buy extra equipment. They're giving them free training. And so now you've got a police department that looks more like soldiers, like a military uh, operation, than police. And what that's going to do is that's going to escalate it. Because, you know, once again, looking at psychology, you've got this equipment lying around, you're more likely to be aggressive, you're more likely to use it. Whereas if you don't have it, then you might try to be maybe a little more diplomatic. So what I would do is I would stop that. And I'd like to point out, this is how we got to this point with these tanks and paramilitary stuff. If you put on a referendum, uh, you know, right now we're having uh, problems in Atlanta, unfortunately, um, I, I, uh, where some, somebody else was killed. They shut down the interstate. I saw where 75 and eight, I know that part well, where 75 and 85 merged. And here's, here's what I would point out. If, Atlanta, if the uh, voters of Atlanta had a referendum 
and they said, okay, would you like your taxes raised to whatever, build a new school, build a new park? You know, some, might, some people might say, yeah, our school's kind of crumbling, we need a new school. Other people might say, no, we can do fine with the school. I don't think I want a referent, you know, I don't want to raise taxes. So maybe tax, you know, maybe it'll pass, maybe it won't. But if they put a referendum, do you want your taxes raised so that our police department can buy a tank? So that our police department can buy a grenade launcher? I think the police department, or I think the voters are going to say, um, no, I'd rather have the new school building. And so we wouldn't have that kind of equipment. But instead, people pay their federal taxes to the government, they buy the tanks, and then they come back, dangle them, and say, wouldn't you like a free tank? And of course, who's going to turn it down? Because their thinking is, well, if I don't buy the tank, or, or if I don't take the free tank, well, then the people in Texas will get it, or the people in Iowa, or whoever, and I don't want my tax dollars going to benefit somebody else, so sure, I'll take free stuff, and yep. now, now we are where we are. Yeah, law enforcement should not be involved in bidding wars. If, especially if their goals, if their if their goal is to protect people's rights, they they should be bidding against nothing. It's ridiculous. And I'm happy that you brought up the militarization of the police, the program that Congress passed to give police, like explicitly give police military weapons. They have no business having anything like like that. Um, yeah. But I'm curious about something. And they wouldn't have it, yeah. and they wouldn't have it if it weren't for a bloated federal federal government. Absolutely. So I have a question about something though, because you pose a very interesting question there. You basically you said that. If we put the power in the people's hands like uh, to decide how they want their police departments to be composed, the constitution and everything, mm -hmm. they would they they could they could decide it better than people politicians could. I agree with that sentiment. But let's say the people in a particular locality are infected with a law and order mindset and have a very legalistic approach to policing and think that the police are the saviors of mankind and that the police should have all power to destroy the evil criminals or whatever i'm not trying to be hyperbolic this is how some people think literally and it's 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 scary but this is how some people think in that instance couldn't they then use that vote to empower a police department that might not necessarily have uh not necessarily being being enabled to promote the security the securing and the preservation of rights uh, for the people in that area because this is one of the problems with democracy, of course. With full democracy is that it gives too much power to people that may not have inten good intentions for liberty, things like that. Right. So and, what do you think about that? Right. And there are two different kinds of democracy where you have just simple vote and then you have representative. Hmm. And libertarians have a – in, in the 1970s, they started saying that the definition of democracy – is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for breakfast. Yep. So, and, and in a lot of cases, that's what we have. And, that, and that's why our special interests have run amok. So that, that's how we got here. Now, I, I guess, I'm, and I'm not sure exactly what your question is. Is your question, should the federal government ever get involved? Or, or, or how do you change the culture? I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, I would say that the cities and towns are better able to change the culture themselves. Agreed. Anybody who's interested, um, great story. Look at what happened, happened to Camden, New Jersey. They had horrible corruption. They had, um, you know, rampant discrimination, uh, violating people's rights. And they pretty much just shut down the entire police department and got a new one. And now things are going great. But notice that's Camden doing it. They're the ones who know the people and the federal government just as a default should not get involved unless it's absolutely necessary. Now, if, if 
if there is something that is completely out of hand and the governor requests help and help is needed, of course I would be there. However, um, I don't think we've gotten there yet. It, it's, 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 I agree with you. It's all been simple police, police work. I agree with you. Absolutely. And so that's, that's your attitude about policing reform. Let's talk about something a little bit deeper, though. And a lot of people have even said to me that someone who is not black has no business talking about this, but I disagree. I think that if you possess the right mindset, or you, which is just an open mindset, and you are willing to you know, have a critical discussion about this issue, you should be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. The issue of race. Mm-hmm. How much do you believe, personally, and you're a psychologist and everything, so I'm sure you've done studies related to this, how much do you believe race plays into the calculuses of some police departments in America? Do you believe in the idea of systemic racism, or do you believe that these sort of this police brutality and so on and so forth can be explained through other perhaps equally bad causes that are not necessarily linked explicitly with racism? Well, first of all, as a scientist, as a social scientist, I know that you can never point to one cause for behavior. There's always multiple causes. Remember, some of those include genetic and biological on top of what's going on at the moment. So we've got all sorts of causes. But I will say that absolutely there's been systemic racism right in the laws of our country. And I like to point to two things. First of all, after the slaves were freed, uh, the slaves were actually going through a very um, economically prosperous era. The, the first 10 years, they were out there, they were skilled craftsmen, because remember, they were the ones doing the work. And so they're out there offering their excellent talents or ex- excellent skills at a lower price because they're just getting into business, which, by the way, is what I did when I started my business. I offered awesome. lower price. Yeah, I offered lower prices because that's what you got to do to get your foot in the door. So they're out there just booming, and the whites are scratching their heads going, oh my gosh, how do we stop this? How do we get our monopoly back? Well, instead of competing with them on price, instead mm-hmm. of saying, okay, we've got to offer better quality and better pricing, instead they wrote it into the law. And that's how we got Jim Crow laws because whites could not compete economically. So they used the force of government. And then the other uh, part I would like to talk about is the rest of the story for the Rosa Parks story. Most of us have heard of Rosa Parks, the black woman who was ordered to sit in the back of the bus and she refused. And we all think she's a hero. She was. What a lot of people don't realize is, first of all, about 60%, 60 to 70% of the uh, ridership were blacks at the time. And secondly, that bus, that bus was a government-owned, government-run bus. That was the government telling Rosa Parks to sit at the back of the bus. Now, let's put that in today's terms. Let's say that Uber or Lyft or one of the transportation companies mistreated the best 60% of their customers. What would happen to them? They'd go out of business as well they should as well they should but with government you've got no accountability and that's just one more one more um example of racism built into the system so of course we're where we are and i'd like to point out that under the free market there is much less chance for for racism because if you're selling a product and i love milton friedman's example let's say you're a baker you don't care if you buy wheat from 
a black man or a white man or a black woman or whoever, uh, you want to get the best wheat for the lowest price because you want to make a profit. And so you're going to make a, you, you don't care about color because you want to make a profit. Now, are there some people who uh, do care about color to the point that they'll cut off their nose to spite their face, you know, that, that they will say, yeah, I'll pay for a higher grain from a white person. Of course, but they're more likely to go out of business for having that racism. And one last thing too, I used to work for IBM and I like to point out how my first, my, my first year there, the uh, rookie of the year, the previous year who, who taught, you know, who went around teaching all the rookies was a white woman. And this was traditionally a male-dominated field. And in my region, uh, the number one salesperson, the number one rookie of the entire region was a black man from Guyana. Now, if IBM had discriminated and said, we're only going to have white males, they would be missing out on these two people. So if you are, um, you know, basically, I do not think it should be against the law to be stupid. And the good thing is, is that the free market gets, get, gets rid of stupid people a lot better than the government because we've had government protecting special interests and protecting white interests for many, many decades, centuries actually. Very fascinating stuff. And you gave a very compelling argument as to why the free market racism just, just kills racism. I mean, this has been, I think this has been, it's one of the sort of maxims, sort of, sort of like built in, that features of the free market that it just kills injustice it kills anything that is anathema to human growth and flourishing although i am curious though about systemic racism and mm -hmm. i'm not i'm not trying to trip you up or anything because I'll, I'll be coy about what i personally believe i don't necessarily think that it is as, as big of a factor as it is as it was 60 years ago today but oh, yeah agree, but yeah. you do okay no i i, I agree yeah. with you partly because our society has changed yeah because, yeah. um, in, in fact, here's here's another real quick argument for the free market. I just heard, I, I've heard of a couple stories recently where an employee of a large company on a personal Facebook post put something that was racist and got fired. And, 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 I, and I wish I could remember the name of the company, but this woman worked, and, and she was a woman, <laughs> and she, she was a white woman, and she worked for a large company. And she wasn't discriminating against her fellow employees, she wasn't harassing them, she wasn't discriminating against customers or clients, she was merely expressing her own opinion, and that was enough to get her fired. So I think that our society has changed than, than 60 years ago. I mean, I'm old enough, I remember, um, and I grew up north of Chicago, but I, I would come down south to visit my grandparents. And I do remember the colored only uh, drinking fountains. I, yeah. I remember seeing them as a child. Wow, goodness. Yeah, and I'm we sure. don't have those anymore, so. Thankfully, thankfully, yeah. Whenever I look back at a picture from the 60s where mm -hmm. that, that existed, I just, I'm filled with revulsion. Genuinely, yep. just yep. So, so, so I do agree with you on that point. I think we've made great strides, but that doesn't mean that we've gotten rid of all this systemic stuff. Oh, I, I, I think that's a very prudent view to take. And so, a lot of people on, on more who are more left leaning would say that, you know, the government should step in to squash systemic racism. They should step in, like for example, people point out uh, disparities in house ownership, disparities in education, 
So a lot of people would say, maybe look at your campaign, look at the Libertarian Party in general and say, okay, the, the system is still actively oppressing us in their view. But you want you want to like take back, roll back the protections that we have against a system that is actually oppressing us. So you're not really for us. What would you say that kind of argument? I, I don't agree with that argument at all, yeah. but what would, you, what would you say that kind of argument? Well, what I would say is we absolutely needed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because there was systemic racism. But I think there should have been a sunset provision put into it because now we're having a backlash going the other way. And libertarians believe that nobody should be discriminated against. Uh, blacks or whites, women or men, uh, Latinos, whatever group. And what we're having now is is because we've got a system that looks like it's quota driven, now people's race is being brought to the forefront and that's what we see. Uh, to the point that now we've got people saying, oh, I don't notice you're black, you know, even though you can perfectly see. So, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah. let's just get <laughs> along. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I wish people could, you know, just follow the golden rule and, and exactly. just get along. But unfortunately, many people cannot. And so a lot. So I, I don't want to speak for any major group. I don't want to do that. But from my interactions with other African-American individuals, I can say that a lot of folks among the African-American contingent within the United States do feel like they need government protections to be protected from the government. It's not logical, my opinion, but they do feel like that. And so if libertarians are going to reach a lot of people, uh, African-Americans in this country, how do you think they can do it while, while also holding the position that anti-discrimination law should not exist mm -hmm. and that civil rights, the Civil Rights Act should, at least Title III, where it, where it pre where prevents private businesses from doing what they want to do, should be gone? And because those are, those are positions, again, that I entirely accept. I think they are valid. I think they are good. I, I agree with them. But a lot of African-Americans are like, ooh, no. And they're scared when they hear that. How do you bridge that divide? Well, I would say, first of all, there's a difference between government and how government treats people and private industry and how they treat people. Hmm. And I would point out, uh, if you look at the government, for instance, in South Carolina, there was uh, a case that made news in which a white woman had had a black repairman come fix, I think it was her washing machine. Hmm. And she, and, and the guy owned his own business. He was very successful. And she said, you know, how, how are you doing with all this race stuff going on? And he said, well, thank you for asking me. And they just kind of what they said, you know, open the dialogue. But, uh, and he said that, you know, now here he is, a successful businessman, uh, profitable. He says he does not do nighttime repairs because he's afraid somebody would mistake him for, you know, for, for being where he shouldn't be. And he said that he had gotten stopped by cops six times in the previous year. And I was floored. And part of the reason was because, you know, being in the appliance repair uh, profession, sometimes he would have appliances and people thought, oh, he's black. He must be stealing this refrigerator or whatever. And I got to admit, I, I was appalled. I can't imagine getting pulled over six times, not for speeding, you know, not for running a red light, but just because I've got appliances in my truck. So, but, but that, that is government and that needs to be stopped 
So if somebody says, if, if a person of color says we're being treated unfairly, we need changes in the system, I would say absolutely you need changes in the, in the government system. What I would say is that the private industry is the group that has led the way to less discrimination because they are Great. looking at a profit. And let me give you um, an example with uh, gay, with gay rights. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the uh, Walt Disney World in the early 90s started offering benefits to spouses, to, to partners of their gay employees in the early 90s. That was like 20 years before the government came around to doing it. And if you look at uh, child labor laws, um, a lot of people say, well, if it weren't for the government, we'd still have six-year-olds working in the factories. No, it wasn't until people were already not allowing their six-year-olds to work because they're prosperous enough that then the government passes the law. Right. And, and so if, if, you look at, if you look at the changes in the laws, you'll see that the change in society had already started. And right. government just can't keep up with that. And, and again, the private industry does a much better job of not discriminating because they're held accountable, whereas government isn't. Government can be as racist as they like, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. But private industry, if they want your business, they better treat you right because you have a choice and you can go to somebody else. And that's what's been, and that typically is what happens. Excellent. We're wrapping up in a few minutes, Sarah, but I just got a few more questions because, again, you are fascinating. And, again, I am forever thankful for your time. Oh, um, um, So I like how you put all of that because a lot of, again, I think that, a lot of African Americans uh, have been entrapped into thinking that the government is necessary for them to survive in this country, necessary for them to be considered as people in this country, because it was the government that did pass the Civil Rights Act, but it passed the Civil Rights Act not because it's the government, because it, it for once government actually acknowledged a single truth that individuals are valuable and don't deserve to be treated differently because of an arbitrary characteristic, and so, but often, but the government itself is predicated. Or how the government acts is predicated upon untruths, lies about how people act, you know, forced altruism, this sort of, this sort of, uh, this sort of, this sort of dark, these sort of, these these benevolent desires manifested through dark means, so to speak. And so, yeah, to just put it to put it artistically. And so, I'm happy that we have this sort I'm, of. I'm not so eloquent. I I, <laughs> I just talk nuts and bolts to people. <laughs> no, and, and that's good. I I could never run president. I could never run president. Man. Uh, but you know, piggybacking off of that, what do you think of the sort of idea? that as we as we continue to see many people get scared about their they're losing their job to some foreign industry or whatever and we that sort of protectionist ideology that nationalist ideology that is baked into a sentiment of competition not cooperation competition between the united states and china and russia and our adversaries what, what, where do you, what do you think we can do or your campaign can do in this season to dispel that notion and to root it out from the political discourse or to soothe the very real fear of someone losing their job to someone and disconnect it from a sentiment that might be opposed to immigration coming here? How does the Jorgensen campaign fight the same kind of fear 
that is the same foundation that a lot of people who are concerned about racism have. The idea, because both of them say, I need the government to protect me from people who are racist. I need the government to protect me from people who are going to take my job. How do you fight those things at their foundation? What do you do? Do you just talk to people? Do you use statistics? How do you reach people in the depths of their soul to dispel that sort of fear around that kind of stuff? Well, how about using motivation? <laughs> typically, Ooh, okay, okay. People will typically work more if they get more money, right? And in fact, yes. that's why the, that's why the Soviet Union failed. They had uh, a policy of basically we pretend to pay you, you pretend to work. <laughs> so the first thing I would do is I would get rid of the corporate income tax so that companies wouldn't be putting factories around the world so that they are more likely to stay here and people are more likely to uh, have jobs here. But secondly, maybe there are some things that are economically uh, more feasible to be produced overseas, but we have advantages to produce other things here. And yes. what we're looking for is overall economic prosperity. And, you know, kind of what, where the chips fall. Now, let me point out, uh, because you brought up Russia and China, and you, you didn't really bring up the military. But I would like to point <laughs> yeah. out. <laughs> I would yeah. like to point out. First of all, what I would do is I would reduce the military budget by about two-thirds. Because even if we reduced it by two-thirds, we would still have the largest military in the budget-wise in the entire world. Yep. We'd, be tied, we'd be tied for number one. So, for instance, right now, we're, our taxpayer dollars are going to, to buy military jets that are over there in Europe. How about we let Europe, Germany, and France, let them pay for their own defense? We're paying for military jets that are over in the Middle East, which are making us less safe, not more safe. So instead of spending taxpayers' dollars to build military jets, how about we let you keep your money by not having an <laughs> income tax, a personal income tax, and with that money, you can now use it to buy airplane tickets yep. to take your family on vacation. So the airline industry is still being supported. Jets are still being built. But instead of being built for soldiers overseas, they're built for what people can use, uh, you know, what people want to use them for here. So uh, let's bring our troops home. And what I wanted to, what I want to do is turn America into one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral, in which we have peace, in which young people are not having their lives uh, put at risk. We have families together, and there's just no reason for us to be the world's policemen anymore. And then uh, I'd also like to point out that, like the old saying, where goods cross borders, uh, troops don't have to. So uh, a personal incident that happened to me in the early 80s, I was driving a, a Fiat Spider, and I do enjoy driving. <laughs> and so I was parking in a parking lot, and this, I see this older gentleman coming towards me, and he's kind of got a scowl on his face. And I thought, oh, I didn't cut you off, did I? Like, I thought I was driving nicely. And he comes over, and he's just glaring at my car. And he tells me he's a World War II veteran, and how dare I drive an Italian car. And, <clears throat> yeah, so well, I was actually kind of afraid of him. But, you know, <laughs> I, 
But no, I, 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 I did not want to get into a debate with him or an argument because he served our country. And I'm just so thankful to anybody who, who gives up their, you know, some of the prime years of their lives 100%. to defend our country. So I was not about to get into a debate with him. But if I were to get into a debate with him, <laughs> what I would have said was, you know what? If we keep buying cars from Italy, they're not going to bomb us. You know, Japan bombed Pearl, Pearl Harbor, right? They're not going to bomb uh, one of the countries that buys the most Toyotas and Hondas. You tend to not bomb your best customer. So if we can have free trade, that's one of the best military, you know, the best uh, defense is a good offense. That's one of the best military offenses in which to have good relationships with these countries. So we can reduce the military and we can spend the money for what we want to not put it overseas with uh, aircraft, troops, ships, and so forth, and uh, let people make their own decisions. Absolutely. I could not have said it better myself. Absolutely. Uh, just two more questions, Dr. Dorkins. Sure. So much more, much more basic questions than I, I promise. Um, your campaign going forward, and I know – Mr. Mr. Cohen and I on our interview talked about this. I think this is going to be the campaign that redefines the political scene in America to permanently include the Libertarian Party in the national scene. Do you have that same feeling? And what is your campaign doing to get included in the debates? If you can talk about that, to get included, to, to advertise, to promote, things like that. What are you doing to get the message out, especially in the age of COVID-19? Well, first of all, yeah, the good news is, is like Joe Biden, I'm kind of stuck in my home. So mm. for, for once, we're on an equal footing there because, <laughs> because the Democrats and Republicans are not on an equal footing. Uh, we have to spend, uh, I can't even tell you how much money, on ballot access because basically when you know, we were on the ballot in all 50 states, uh, like three election cycles in a row, three presidential election cycles in a row, and then they started getting worried, worried about us. And so then they started throwing out all these roadblocks for us. And what's interesting is that if you look at some of the hoops we have to jump through, when other countries do it, our federal government labels those countries as not having free and fair elections. And yet they're doing the same thing in this country. So they're putting up roadblocks. So what we're doing is we're trying to get to people through social media and we're doing a great job because first of all, we are just overwhelmed by how many volunteers that we've had sign up. Many more than we thought. And what's even more exciting is so many of them are non-libertarian volunteers. Wow. Uh, we were really caught off guard by that. I mean, of course we welcome them in, but usually when a campaign starts off, you start off with your core people and then you spread out. But we started out with our non-core people. They, and, and, and we've heard in the media, of course, they keep referring to them as two old rich white guys, which of course helps us. And people are saying, yeah, we don't want another old rich white guy. And so, uh, so I would at this point like to mention to, if you'd like to, please come to joj2020.com and help us out. And please vote for me uh, next November to show those people. And, and to further answer your question, um, <clears throat> a lot of people got the polls wrong because they were only polling recent voters. They did not look at people who never voted or hadn't voted in 20 years. And these people were saying, I'm sick with the system as it is. I want an outsider like Donald Trump. 
Well, now we've got this supposed outsider who parachutes in to the presidency, and I don't mean that derogatorily. What I mean is he doesn't have 40, 50 years of political favors to repay. So he comes in without that baggage, and he still gives us bigger government. So if all hope is lost for a Republican to ever get a smaller government if Donald Trump can't do it without his political baggage. So that's what I would say to everybody is, if you're looking for a real alternative, to vote libertarian at all levels in November and to come to our website at joj2020.com. And that dovetails perfectly into my last question for you. Uh, what progressives who are looking at you, conservatives who are looking at you, what do you say to them about your campaign and about libertarianism in general? What do you say to affirm and assure them that they have a place in Joe Jorgensen's campaign in a libertarian world? Well, first of all, I would tell the conservatives what I just mentioned to you about Donald Trump. I would say I completely understand why you voted for Donald Trump. You didn't want the same old same old. You wanted, you know, he said he was going to get rid of the deficit. I understand why you voted for him. Unfortunately, not only is the deficit not going down, it's going up. And I would say that the Republican voters have been screaming for uh a free market healthcare type system they are completely against single payer for good reason and we didn't get into that really and i would say look at what the republicans gave you uh john mccain voted against getting obamacare uh the republicans had control and they still couldn't get rid of obamacare so mm -hmm. if you really want to accomplish what you're looking for the Republican politicians, who are separate from the Republican voters, they're not going to give you what you want. To the Democratic voters, I would say, let's sit down and first of all, have a, 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 a discussion about health care. And let me show you how doctors who are working, who are competing against each other to get your business, who are, are like car dealerships, who have to offer lower prices to get your business. Let me explain to you how we can set up a system in which doctors have to add, add, add sorry, act like uh, car dealerships or grocery stores or gasoline stations, gas stations by giving you a lower price. And I would say, you know, you are the traditional party of peace. You've been the traditionally the party of anti-war. Mm -hmm. And the, Repub or the, the Democratic Party has betrayed you in that regard. Tulsi Gabbard was spreading a great message when mm -hmm. it came to peace, and the party pretty much shut her down. They did mm -hmm. not want her saying that. Right. Hillary has been a war hawk from the beginning. If you don't want war, we are your only option. If you want the troops home and you want peace, we are the only option. Absolutely. Do uh, Dr. Jorgensen, I appreciate it so, 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 so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming on Pens of Politics, and thank you for running. America needs it. Oh, thank you. Libertarianism needs it. The Libertarian Party needs it. So thank you so much. And to everyone watching this, please stay safe during these perilous times. And as always, stay pensive.